Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people, from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab and the Amorites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray tonight that we might hear your word and that you might make us wise for salvation, so that we might live singing your praises for the great work that you have done for us in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Uh, these days it seems to me that people have a great deal of faith in human leaders. Uh, there's this kind of uh, great hope that if we can find the right leader, if we can find uh, the right sort of leader, if we can find the leader who embodies all of our values and, and all of our hopes and all of our dreams, then somehow we'll be able to change the world for better. Uh, somehow we'll be able to face some of the great many challenges that are before us and even make our world better for us and for future generations. And the Bible, I think, is quite clear. Uh, the Bible is clear that we're right to be positive about the potential of human leaders. If we could find the right leader, well, we could change the world. If we can find the right leader, uh, we can make a, a real difference. But the Bible is also clear that that's a very big if at the start of those sentences. Finding such a leader, oh, that's a very difficult thing to do. Finding the kind of leader who can fulfill all of their promises, finding the kind of leader who can make real and lasting change, uh, that is not an easy thing to do. And as we know, so many of our experiences of human leaders are nothing but bitter disappointments. But the other thing that the Bible says, and specifically that Isaiah 11 and 12 says, is that it will not always be that way. One day there will be a leader. One day there will be a king who does not disappoint. A king who will actually provide everything that we need in life, even if we don't really understand what we need until we meet him. Now, of course, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, as we've been in the wonderful book of Isaiah, uh, then last week in Isaiah 6, you would have seen God's great plan to transform Jerusalem. For Jerusalem needs transforming. Uh, the people claim to worship God, but they are denying him with their every action and attitude. They're greedy and corrupt and rebellious. They've turned their backs on God. And there are deep injustices that are entrenched in their society. The rich and powerful oppress the poor and the needy. And so God has a plan. And God's plan is not just to transform Jerusalem, but to transform all of his people. And not just to transform all of his people, but actually to transform the whole world. But it is an unusual plan we saw last week. To send a prophet that no one will hear or believe or understand. So that the promised judgment might come, that the land might be struck and all the people sent into exile by Assyria. And so that all that is left of God's people and God's nation is this charred stump of a tree in an empty field. But in that stump, God said in Isaiah 6.13, there would be a seed, a holy seed. And from that seed, God promised that he would grow a new nation a pure and, and cleansed people. Uh, essentially, God's plan was to reboot Israel, to start all over again, uh, starting with this holy seed. And, and from this holy seed, uh, he would be the foundation of a new people, uh, as God calls his people back from exile to be his people once again. And we skipped over a few chapters. We skipped over uh, chapters 7 to 10. Uh, but if you've been reading along in the, the daily devotionals, like I hope you have, we've also seen some pretty big hints of who this leader might be, uh, that he will be a king. Uh, some pretty famous hints, actually, especially as we kind of come in towards Christmas. I couldn't help but notice this week all the Christmas decorations went up in the shop. I swear it's getting earlier every year. 
But this week, we would have read Isaiah 7, where a child was promised, born of a virgin, whose name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Or another very famous Christmas passage, Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read to you a few verses from verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But in chapter 11, the the camera zooms in and we see this leader like we've never seen him before. And the message is this, here is the king who can transform Jerusalem. Here is the king that can take the faithless city and make her the faithful city once again, who can transform sinful Jerusalem into redeemed Zion. And if he can do it with Jerusalem, he can and he will do it with the rest of the world as well. So come with me to Isaiah 11 and 12. I've got three things uh, that Isaiah sees that I want to share with you. Uh, Isaiah sees the king in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. He sees the kingdom of the king in chapter 11, verses 6 to 16. And then in chapter 12, he sees how God's people will respond to both the king and the kingdom. So firstly then, let's meet this this promised king. Come with me to chapter 11, verse 1. And here he's described for us. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. See, straight away, here is the fulfillment of where we finished last week in Isaiah chapter 6. From the the charred stump of God's judgment, a a new green shoot of life will appear, uh, just like the new life after a burnout bushfire. The holy seed will sprout. A shoot will come up from the the stump of Jesse and it will bear fruit. Uh, Now, Jesse, if if you know your Bibles well, Jesse was the father of King David. And it's a little bit of a surprise to hear that this king will come from the stump of Jesse because I guess I I was expecting that it would come from the stump of of David. I was expecting that this king would be a a descendant of David. After all, God made promises to David in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7 that the king would always come from the family of David. Uh, Jesse, as far as I know, is not famous for anything other than being the father of King David. I'm very sorry if your name is Jesse, by the way. Uh, But you're nothing special. Neither was Jesse. (laughs) But this new king who will come, this figure of Isaiah 11, uh, he will not be just from the the, the family of Jesse. Uh, He will not just be a a new David. He he will be the new David. Uh, He will come from the same humble origin. And like David, his fitness to rule is not dependent upon any human attribute. Uh, Instead, his fitness to rule will come because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, giving him wisdom and understanding and counsel and and might. This king will delight in the fear of the Lord that Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom. And so this king will rule the world in justice and with righteousness. He will not rule by external appearances in verse 3. He will not rule by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. 
And at first glance, that seems a little strange, doesn't it? You would imagine that a ruler who is blind and deaf would not make a very good ruler at all. Until, of course, you remember that actually what you see and what you hear always favours the powerful. They are the visible ones. They are the vocal ones. They are the impressive ones. They are the ones who can afford the best lobbyists. They are the ones who can influence the media. They are the ones who can buy the media. Uh, They are the ones who have access to the corridors of power. And so if you are a a ruler who who rules with justice as this way, as this king will do, you don't rule with what you hear or what you see. Instead, we're told this king will rule with the very spirit and wisdom of God. And so in verse 4, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and by the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness a sash around his waist. Notice that his words are are powerful weapons. You know, words are incredibly powerful. I was always taught a little rhyme when I was a little boy, you know. I wonder if you've heard it. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. What a naive thing to say. What a foolish thing to teach children. Words are are very powerful. Words are incredibly dangerous. There is a really, uh, there is a growing sense in our world today of just how powerful words are. And so, of course, there is a, a growing debate in our word today as to who should be allowed to speak and who should be silenced. But this king will cut through all of that. Because this king, by his word, by what comes out of his mouth, by what comes from his lips, will rule and bring justice. And not just the slaying of the wicked, not just the the defeat of those who are evil, as important as as that is. This king will defend the powerless from the powerful, especially those who are needy and who who are poor. This king will uh, stop that oppression that is going on in the world's. He will bring justice of all sorts, including economic justice. For the fair distribution of resources is one of the purposes of good government and of all those who rule. Now this, of course, this is a stunning vision of a king. A king who is so unlike the rulers and the politicians that we are used to. A king who will be fair, a king who will be just, a king who will fix problems, a king who will make things better. Who wouldn't want to be ruled over by a king like this? Who wouldn't want to be part of of this king's kingdom? And so in in verses 6 to 16, we're shown what this king's kingdom will be like. And we're shown in two complementary ways. Uh, firstly, we're told in verses 6 to 9 uh, that uh, the, the banner, the, the root of Jesse's kingdom is described as a, a new garden of Eden uh, in another very famous passage from Isaiah. Pick it up at, at verse 6 with me, would you? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. 
They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I took the kids to the zoo yesterday, and when you go to the zoo, all the animals have to have their own enclosure. You can't let the animals all mix together because we know what they'll do when they, they're all allowed to kind of roam freely. In fact, in some of the displays, even, the, the, even in the same species, the animals have to be kept apart because of what they'll do to one another if they're able to stay together. Uh, everyone knows, everyone except Taronga Zoo knows, that you've got to keep the animals apart. You can't let the lions out. That was a great uh, shock, especially to the school children who were camping overnight in Taronga Zoo when the lions got out. Uh, but the kingdom of this king is described as a place where the weak and the strong can live together, where there is even peace between predator and prey. There's no violence, there's no envy, there's no oppression. There's no strife or war. There's no suffering. Here is a return to the Garden of Eden as it's described in Genesis 1 and 2. But here is a a description of something that's even better than the Garden of Eden. Because in Eden there was a snake. In Eden there was a snake that viciously attacked humanity with venomous words. But here in this king's kingdom, well, the child and the snake, they will live and happily play side by side. See, there'll be no temptation, there'll be no snares. It's not going to be like last time. This time it will be different. This time you won't get a Genesis chapter 3 because this king rules. Here is a a picture of, of a world, a whole creation put back together the way that it's supposed to be. A peaceful paradise. And the whole earth will be like God's holy mountain in verse 19 because the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters that cover the sea. God will be known and God's rule will be experienced everywhere by everyone. What a kingdom this will be. Now this idyllic picture of the king's kingdom is described in a different, but not in a, in, not in a kind of contradictory, but a, a complementary way in verses 10 to 16. Not poetically as a new Eden, but now from another part of the Old Testament, now historically as a new Exodus. Uh, so pick it up at, at 11 verse 10, would you? In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and the resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people. See, when the king is lifted up, he becomes like a a banner. He becomes like a flag, a rallying point for all of God's people. And they will come to him. Uh, God will gather together all the remnant exiles of verse 11. And just like God gathered his people once from Egypt and took them to the land of promised rest... Now God will gather them a second time and he will take them to the glorious resting place of this king. God will purchase them a second time. God will redeem them a second time, not just from Egypt now, but from a whole long list of nations in verse 11. From wherever Assyria will scatter them, God will gather them once more. But you'll notice It's not just Israel who's gathered. Have a look at verse 10, and then it's also in verse 12. There's a little phrase there. Not just Israel is gathered, the nations will also gather. 
It's not just the, that the exiles will return, but actually with them will come other people. With them will come aliens and strangers. With them will come foreigners and Gentiles. With them will come the nations. And they too will come to this king. And they too will come to, to this king's kingdom. And they will be part of it. That's an, an incredible hint. An incredible hint of something that is so amazing and so inconceivable that we take it completely for granted. You see, let me ask you a, a slightly impertinent question. Is there anyone here today who is of Jewish descent? Anyone kind of here today? When I asked at 9 o'clock, I got one person. When I asked at 11 o'clock, I got a, one person. There was none at 4.30 and it looks like there's none here either. Now, how did a room full of Gentiles, how did a room full of non-Jews, how did a room full of the enemies of God's people come to have a share in the Jewish Messiah? How did we come to have a part in Jerusalem and in the city of God? The people of Isaiah's day would have been shocked by these words. Gentiles, worshipping God, serving the king, enjoying the kingdom... But such is the grace of God towards us that what was a scandal to them is something that we take completely for granted. And so when the banner is lifted and the people from the nations are gathered, God will reverse all of Israel's misfortunes. Have a look at verse 13. Now what's going to happen is a replaying of all of Israel's history, only this time without the mistakes. And so firstly, God is going to end the rivalry between Ephraim and Judah. Now, we haven't talked much about this yet, but sadly, one of the ways that God was rebelling against his people is that actually they'd split and become two nations. And the northern ten tribes are ruled over by a king from the tribe of Ephraim. And the southern two tribes are being ruled over by a king from the tribe of Judah. So there's this great rivalry between Ephraim and Judah. But when this king comes and when his kingdom comes... They will be one people once more. The rivalry will end. And they will be one nation again, just like they were under King David. And so too, this, this newly reunited people in verse 14, they will swoop down on the Philistines. They will subdue Edom and Moab and the Ammonites. This time they will do what they failed to do in the time of Joshua and, and the judges. This time they will subdue the land properly as God instructed uh, this time, uh, the kings will, will, this king will, will rule over the whole of the land that God had promised them. In other words, through this king, God is going to, to replay Israel's history. There will be a new exodus. There will be a new conquest. But it will happen without the failures, without the mistakes, without the sins of the past. God will gather his people from all the four quarters of the earth. And they will miraculously escape from Assyria, just as they miraculously escaped from Egypt. Uh, they will cross the Euphrates River even more easily than they crossed the Red Sea. In verse 15, the great Euphrates River will be, will be split into seven tiny streams. So small that if you want to keep your feet dry, all you'll need is a pair of crocs and you'll be fine. <laughs> That's how small they will be. There's going to be no barrier to God's people and to the nations flocking to the king. 
and flocking to his kingdom. And so what a day it will be. The day of the great king who rules with justice and righteousness. Who cares for the oppressed and the needy. Who solves the problems of our world that we can so see around us each and every day. And his kingdom, a paradise, a new Eden. A new nation with none of the mistakes of the past. None of the failures of the past. What a kingdom it will be. And so how do we respond to something like this? How do we respond to this king and to this kingdom? And Isaiah shows us that we will respond just like Moses and Miriam did when God led them out of Egypt. We will respond by singing in chapter 12. In that day, we will sing, Isaiah sees. And the day that we sing, the day of of chapter 12, verse 1 and chapter 12, verse 4, is the same day that we've just been reading about, the same day of of 11.10 and 11.11. In that day is the little phrase that actually uh, connects these two chapters together. And in that day when the, the root of Jesse is raised up as a banner for the people to lead the nations, it's also the day when we will rejoice and we will sing to God. For it is the day when the anger of the Lord will be turned away. 12 verse 1. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. See, in that day, God's anger will be turned away. But notice something really interesting. Notice how the song goes. Uh, The song, it's all in the first person, isn't it? The song is, I will praise you, Lord, although you are angry with me. Uh, I will trust. I will not be afraid. Uh, You're my strength. You're my salvation. You see... Why is the song like this? Because it is the anger of God at our sin that is the problem. See, why is the world the way that it is today? Why is our world now not like the kingdom of this king that was just described for us? Why are there these entrenched problems in our society that no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to fix? Why is it that human leaders so easily fail us? Why is it that our our political leaders so often turn out to be selfish rather than servants of the very people that they promise that they will care for? Well, the Bible says it's because of our sin. It's because of our hearts. It's because we have rebelled against God each and every one of us. It's because of your sin. It's because of my sin. And so God is angry with you. And God is angry with me. Has anyone ever been really angry with you? I mean, you know, it's an awful feeling to have someone angry with you. And it's even worse when they're right and you're wrong. When actually they have every reason to be angry with you. 
It just feels dreadful. And, and you, you say sorry and you mean it and you, you try, but yet they're still angry with you. And you feel so helpless because there doesn't seem to be anything you can say and anything you can do to make it better. God is angry with us because of our sinfulness. We have the same problem that Israel has. And it's a collective problem, we all have it, but it's an individual problem. It's in each one of our hearts. And like Israel, there is nothing that we can do to turn away the anger of God. Because we deserve it. We deserve his anger. But when that day comes, when the root of Jesse is raised up as a banner, it is the day when God turns his anger away. It is the day when we can sing, when we will have comfort, when we will no longer be afraid, when the Lord will be our strength and our defense. He will be our salvation. He will be our joy, the joy of being safe and secure in him. And that song of salvation, that's such a great thing. That's such a wonderful thing that in verses four to six, it overflows. And it now becomes a song of praise that all the earth sings to call upon the Lord in prayer and, and to proclaim the, the wonderful things that he has done. Uh, verse 4, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the worlds. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. See, in that day, in that day, because God's anger has been turned away, we will sing. Together we will sing and encourage each other to sing. Uh, that day will be so good, even the Australians will sing. And it won't even be at the football. But still we will sing. Because that is the day when God's anger is turned aside. That is the day of salvation. That is the day where the banner is raised up and where everyone who trusts in the Lord can flock to his king for salvation. That is the day that Isaiah is longing for and looking forward to. And that is the day that has already come. That is the day that has already come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The shoot from the stump of Jesse has already sprouted. New life has, has already come. Not just a son of David, but a new David. Great David's greatest son, as one hymn writer put it. The one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord does rest in power. The one who is full of wisdom and understanding. The one who was so full of the fear of the Lord that in the garden he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, Jesus was lifted up, literally lifted up on a cross and became a banner for all people to find salvation. And Jesus himself understood this. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus himself said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then there's a little comment that John makes. He says, and he said this to show the kind of death 
that he was going to die. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he came. Jesus knew that he had come to be lifted up as a banner for the nations. Jesus knew he'd come to turn aside the anger of God. And Jesus knew that the only way that he could turn aside the anger of God was by letting it fall upon him and not upon us. Well, that is what he does at the cross. Jesus is lifted up so that all of God's anger, all of his judgment, all that we deserve might fall on him. And so then we can sing the song of Isaiah 12. We can sing of the forgiveness and the salvation and the comfort that we have received. For our God who was rightly angry with us is angry with us no more because of Jesus, because of the cross. In Jesus That day has come. But has it come for you? Can you sing these words? Can you sing of the Lord who was angry with me but is no longer because of the cross of Jesus Christ and therefore I am comforted? Can you sing those words? Or do you still stand under God's anger? You don't need to anymore. The new king has come. He's turned aside God's anger for all that you have done. There's no need for you to, to continue under the judgment of God. There's no need to fear him. You too can know the comfort and forgiveness and the joy of salvation. The joy of knowing the king. And the joy of knowing that you have a place, even a place forever in his kingdom. The new Garden of Eden, the new people of God who will last forever. If you don't know the joy of forgiveness, the joy of having God's anger turned away, come and talk to me about it tonight. I'd love to talk to you more about it. Come, to, come talk to Joe about it. He'd love to talk to you about it as well. We'd love to share with you how you too might find the forgiveness of sins, how God's anger might be turned away from you. But if you are someone who knows that comfort, who knows the comfort of of God's anger turned away, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But I think sometimes our temptation is to forget that Jesus really is the foundation of our salvation. He really is the only one who can turn aside God's wrath. He really is the only sacrifice for our sins. And so he really is the only one who can lead us home to God's kingdom. Our temptation, I think, sometimes is to look to other human leaders. Uh, to get frustrated by the waiting and the worrying and the, the work that Jesus has left us to do. Uh, to go looking for another leader who might somehow do for us what it sometimes feels like Jesus is not doing for us. And to us, I say, keep trusting Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. And keep trusting Jesus 
more than any other leader. I remember many years ago now I, I was at a wedding and I heard what's still the best prayer that I've ever heard at a wedding. A lady got up and she prayed that the new bride would trust Jesus more than she trusted her new husband so that when her new husband failed her, she would not fall. Best prayer, wisest prayer I've ever heard at a wedding. Dead giveaway that the lady praying was also married. Other human leaders will fail you. Every one of them. Political leaders will fail you. Business leaders will fail you. Your teachers, the academics at uni, they'll fail you. Church leaders will fail you. Even one day I will fail you. Even if it's for no other reason that I grow too old and can't keep going. But Jesus never will. Jesus is the only leader who will never fail you. Jesus is the only leader who will never fail to deliver on his promises because Jesus is the only leader who has already delivered on his promise. His promise to turn aside the anger of God. And so he's the only leader whom we can trust to deliver on all his other promises as well including his great promise that we one day will have a place in his kingdom, even though we don't deserve it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that on the cross he was lifted up as a banner for all people. We thank you that on the cross he turned aside your anger at our sin. For it was laid on him. And so we thank you that now we can know the joy of forgiveness, the joy of, of salvation. Now we can sing as they sang in Isaiah 12. Lord, we pray that you would keep us trusting in your promises and obeying your commands until we see you, until we see Jesus face to face in his kingdom. Keep us faithful, Lord, all the days of our life. Help us to trust him more than anyone else so that we might never fall. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.